One late afternoon earlier this summer, I realized that I was hungry. Dinner was only about an hour away, but that didn't stop me from grabbing a chocolate chip cookie. As I sat back down on the couch, I could feel my son's eyes. Looking up, he was standing at the foot of the stairs, glaring at me. With his eyes, he communicated that I was not supposed to be eating cookies before dinner. He knows this to be true because mom has told him so. Well, defensively, I said, I'm a dad. I can do what I want. Without missing a beat, Hayden responded, no, you can't. You have to obey God's law. We laugh at that, but is he right? Was my son correct when he said that I have to obey God's law? That's a claim, we have to obey God's law, that many professing Christians, including most likely some of us in this room, bristle at, right? When people start talking about obeying God's law, the word legalism often pops into our head. I mean, what about grace? What about my freedom in Christ? And this is one of the central theological questions that has followed God's people for generations. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ relate to the law? That's a claim that we're going to look at this morning and a question we're going to interact with uh, as we look at the context of our study of a people who had been given God's law, had rejected God's law for generations to the point of even forgetting God's law and losing it, only to rediscover God's law. Their response, led by their king, can help us, can give us a framework for our response to God's law as God's new covenant people. And we're going to do so with three main points, and they're very simple and even alliterated. Recovering God's law, reading God's law, and responding to God's law. And we're going to meet these ancient people under our first point, recovering God's law. Our primary text for this morning is 2 Chronicles 34, verses 29 to 33. And we're going to be looking at several texts, including basically all of chapter 34, starting with verses 1 through 3, which can be found on page 385 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Page 385, 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 3. 2 Chronicles 34 tells the story of the boy king Josiah and his national and religious reforms. So please follow along as I read 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 3. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy... He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and metal images. Those three verses raise some questions. Like, an eight-year-old king? I mean, my two kids are 11 and 6. And no offense, kids. I don't want either one of them leading a country, especially not the country that I'm a citizen of. What has happened to that once glorious nation of Israel that was led by the mighty kings David and Solomon that it is now coronating an eight-year-old? I think that we can all agree that that's probably on the surface, not politically, a step up, right? Which brings us to the second question. Is this seemingly political regression 
connected to the idols that are being removed from the land by Josiah. He was 20 at the time, but still, 20 is awfully young. What about the actual adults in the room, so to speak? Why were there idols there in the first place? And kids, listen to me, young adults too. Don't wait for us old people to do what's right before you do what's right. It's never too early to follow God. So to answer those questions, we need to take a running start into 2 Chronicles 34, and that requires going back to the beginning. However, we're not going to go all the way back to the beginning just yet. For now, we're going to briefly unpack the immediate context that sets up King Josiah and his reforms in 2 Chronicles 34. After King Hezekiah died, his 12-year-old son Manasseh ascended to the throne. 2 Chronicles 33.2 says of Manasseh that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He rebuilt the altars to Baal, burned his children as a sacrifice, and erected an idol in the temple of the Holy God. Thankfully, by God's grace, after being captured by the Assyrians and drug away with hooks, Manasseh did humble himself before God and seek repentance. But his return to worshiping the one true God didn't extend into the nation past the walls of Jerusalem. Because of that lack of national revival, problems began anew when Manasseh was succeeded by his son Ammon, the father of the boy King Josiah in our text. Now Ammon was, by all definitions, an evil king. In 2 Chronicles 33, verses 21-24, through 24, the historian tells us, that Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more, and his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. Instead of leading a national revival back to worshiping the one true God, Ammon leads the covenant people of God in a revival back to wickedness and idolatry. King Ammon led the people into sin, and the wages of sin is death. God told our first parents this, and throughout the entire story of the Bible, we're confronted with this terrible truth that the fate of sinners is death. And so Ammon dies. He is assassinated at the age of 24. The last verse of the chapter reveals that those who took part in the palace coup were themselves executed, and then Josiah was made king. As we read our way into King Josiah's chapter of God's story, we wonder what happened. God's people had been miraculously brought into the promised land. King David had captured Jerusalem, securing his place and his line's place as the kingly priest first seen in Melchizedek, the ancient king of Jerusalem. And I encourage you later today to read the story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and the story's interpretation in Hebrews 5. With David on the throne, God gives his people peace from their enemies. As promised, David's son mounts the throne and Solomon builds a beautiful place for God to dwell among his people. The land rests, except it doesn't. When we're reading this story, the history of, of God's people, we're immediately pulled back. Sin still reigns. Death reigns. And as we read through First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, we are yo-yoed back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom looking for God's good king. 
And every once in a while, we are given glimpses of what it's like for God's people to live under God's blessing in God's place. But those glimpses are fleeting and serve to remind us that God's people need a transcendent king if the promises of Abraham are to ever be fulfilled. And when we get to the end of 2 Chronicles 33, sin has brought death and chaos. A palace coup is overthrown by another coup, and a child of eight is made king. And at this point in the Bible, we should be longing for God's good and final king. We should have already realized that a mere human isn't enough. Like the poet in Psalm 89, we should be wanting the eternal, sovereign offspring of David. His offspring shall endure forever. His thrones as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And at this point in the Bible, by the time we get to 2 Chronicles 33, we should also be feeling the heavy thematic tone. And we should be grieving the devastating effects of sin on God's covenant people and on ourselves. Sin is ugly and it brings death. So Josiah is made king under chaotic circumstances. A revival of rebellion against God had been led by his father. Thankfully, and by God's grace, as we read earlier in verse 2, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or the left. As a 20-year-old, Josiah begins tearing down the idols and altars to Baal. After he begins purging the land of false worship, Josiah commands that the temple be repaired. And while the temple is being repaired, Verse 14 tells us that Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Hilkiah then gives the book of the law to King Josiah's secretary, Shaphan, who in turn reads the book of the law to King Josiah. Look at Josiah's response in verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Jerusalem and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Josiah then sends Hilkiah and others to a prophetess named Huldah. Let's read what she has to say to the king, starting in verse 23. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. 
and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Huldah prophesies that God is going to do what he promised to do generations earlier. God had called his people to live under his rule and to be a blessing to all the nations. Even though God had been faithful, the people failed. God had been long-suffering. The people had been quick to embrace their self-serving lust. Finally, the time had come for God to once again kick his people out of his land. However, God includes an act of mercy in his word. Because of his tender heart towards God, King Josiah will be spared God's judgment. And that brings us to verse 29. Please follow along as I read 2 Chronicles 34, verses 29 and 30. The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Upon hearing the prophecy of Huldah, King Josiah immediately read the words of the law to the people. And this is our second point, reading God's law. Josiah gathered the religious and civic leaders around him, went to the temple, and read God's word to the people. What exactly did Josiah read, though? There are, there are a few options at this point in the history of redemption. God had already, at this point, divinely inspired several of the books that are in our Bible. However, most conservative scholars uh, believe that the book of the law that the workers found in the temple is Deuteronomy. For starters, in verse 30, it's referred to as the book of the covenant, which runs parallel with Deuteronomy's thematic emphasis on the covenant. Of course, we also read about God confirming his covenant with his people in Exodus. But Exodus doesn't have a list of curses like Deuteronomy does. 2 Chronicles 34, 24 says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Another check mark in the column for Deuteronomy is that the centralization of worship in the tabernacle, as well as the destruction of the high places, features prominently in Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7, and that can be found on page 156 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Page 156, and keep your fingers in 2 Chronicles 34, but follow along as I read Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7. And as I read, pay attention to the parallels that we find in the episode of King Josiah. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. As we'll see in verses 31 through 33 of 2 Chronicles 34, Josiah's reforms are modeled after what we just read in Deuteronomy. Uh, The Passover is emphasized in Deuteronomy 16. And while it's not emphasized in our text this morning, uh, chapter 35 uh, tells us that King Josiah held the Passover. And the parallel passage in 2 Kings 23, verse 22 says... For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. So, based on the textual evidence, I believe that Deuteronomy is most likely the book found by the workers and read by King Josiah, with the high probability that Exodus chapters 19-24 through may have also been included. Regardless of the specific book, the point is that Josiah found it necessary to read God's law to God's people. And as a side note, and I looked it up, Deuteronomy has 24,495 words in it. That means it would take me about four hours to read Deuteronomy out loud to you from this pulpit. So, and I'm just tossing this out there. The next time that you're tempted to think that a sermon is too long, which may happen sooner than you think, uh, remember King Josiah reading the book of Deuteronomy to the people. So why did Josiah read the book of the covenant, God's law, to the people? Couldn't he have enacted his reforms without reading the entire book? Well, no. These verses, our text, verses 29 through 33, are what's called a covenantal renewal ceremony. And in covenant ceremonies, the history and the terms of the covenant were to be read. The word covenant is a word that is used fairly frequently from this pulpit, and that's because covenants are how the Bible's plot is structured. And the Bible's plot is how God redeems his sinful people back to himself. If you're interested in learning more about covenants and their role in God's story, I highly recommend this short book, Covenant and God's Purpose for the World, by Dr. Thomas Schreiner. It's not in our book nook yet because I kept forgetting to email Mike to remind him to order it, but preparing this sermon helped jog jog my memory. If you can't wait, I'll let you have my copy. For now, in short, a covenant is an agreement between two people or two parties. God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him many descendants to make those descendants a great nation and to bless the world through Abraham. Or as it's often referred to, the promise of offspring, land, and universal blessing. The condition for God's blessings in the covenant was faithful obedience. And hold on to all of that. Lord willing, we'll revisit it in a bit. By the time Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the promise of many offspring was being visibly fulfilled. And this large number of Abraham's offspring was being led to the promised land where they would live as a great nation, the land promise. How would they be a blessing to the world, though? Well, this is where the offspring promise and the land promise come together in the giving of God's law at Mount Sinai. The promised land was at the center of several important trade routes of the ancient Near East. 
that little sliver of land on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and connecting the northern part of the Fertile Crescent with the southern part of the Fertile Crescent was literally the spot where the entire known world passed through. The nations of the world traveled through the Promised Land. So when God led the Israelites to Sinai, and most of us know this story, in short, in very short, Moses went up on the mountain, God personally delivered his law to his people through the representative of his people, Moses. After some hiccups, I told you it was very short, Moses led the people in a covenant ceremony like King Josiah is doing in our text. The people agreed to be God's people, formally accepting the covenant terms. A part of that involved Moses taking the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkling that blood on the people. In fact, the Hebrew word that's most often translated sprinkle, and not to cause confusion with our Baptist belief in immersion, that word has been translated baptized in ancient texts. The people were baptized with blood into the covenant. By God's grace, I pray that some mental light bulbs are being turned on about the entire story of redemption, how it fits together seamlessly. And just to help avoid any confusion, the Greek word translated baptized has a much more specific meaning, immerse, than does the Hebrew word. And in the New Testament, the New Covenant, things are clearer. The signs and symbols are revealed more distinctly. There are reasons separate from the Hebrew word for why we believe and practice baptism by immersion. And I'll be more than happy to talk with you about that afterward. So while at Sinai, the presence of God was manifest in fire and smoke. Just like his presence was manifest in a pillar of fire and smoke as God led his people through the wilderness. As Old Testament scholar Alec Matir wrote, this, the smoke and fire, is what God is like. His holiness is not a passive attribute, but an active force as can only be symbolized by fire. A force of destruction of all that is unholy. At Sinai, this holy God came to declare his holy law. God's law isn't a means to an end. It's not a system by which we can earn favor with God. God's law is the revelation of God's character as such. In being called to reflect God, to image God to the unbelieving world, God's people are to live lives of obedience to God's law. Matir puts it this way, and this is good. You should write this down. The law of God is the lifestyle of the redeemed. The law of God is the lifestyle of the redeemed. So within the Mosaic Covenant, as Abraham's promised offspring within the promised land, and quoting Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, as a kingdom of priests, the Israelites, they will function to make the ways of God known to the nations and also to bring the nations into a right relationship to God. Israel will display to the rest of the world within its covenant community the kind of relationships first to God, and then to another in the physical world that God intended originally for all of humanity. That expresses the immediate way in which Abraham's promised seed would be a blessing to the world. Through their covenantal obedience, they would preach God to the nations as the nations passed through their land. And for those of you who are saying to yourselves, but hold on, there's an even better, more glorious and perfect fulfillment of all this. You're right. We're getting there, I promise. But don't spoil the ending of the story for those around you who may not know. All right, so coming back to 2 Chronicles 34. We have a king who loves God and desires to be faithful. But the nation has been called to, has, has been called, the nation he has been called to lead 
has been ravaged by rebellion, sin, and covenant unfaithfulness. And they have lost God's law. And if God's law is the revelation of God himself, and it is, think about what that means. The people are struggling. They're defeated by sin. Land is being hacked away. The Assyrians have already taken most of it. And worst of all, God's people are not being a blessing to the world. Instead, they are adding to the curse. They have embraced sin and death, even to the point of sacrificing their own children. Within our society, are we adding to the curse? Or are we, as God's people, being a light shining forth salvation from the curse? But by God's grace, this boy king's heart was broken. And by God's grace, the book of the law was rediscovered. Upon being confronted with the covenantal failures of God's people, Josiah wept and mourned. Do you weep at your sin? And upon hearing of God's sure and coming judgment on the people and the land, King Josiah called the people together and led them in covenant renewal. Covenant renewal requires knowing what the covenant states. To be the faithful people of God, the people of God must know who God is. And God has revealed Himself in His law. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we be expected to be counted faithful, to be a light to the lost world, if we're not listening to God? And I'm not talking about some mystical inner light or voice. I'm talking about the objective Word of God that is in this book. The Bible doesn't contain the words of God. It is the Word of God. All of it. Josiah understood this. He knew that faithfulness to God requires hearing from God. From having the objective revelation of who God is into our ears, our minds, and our hearts. In Isaiah 55 verse 11, God promises that so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Christian, do you believe that promise? Members of Arlington Baptist Church, do you agree with our church's statement of faith that says that the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creed, and opinion should be tried? In other words, the Bible is our rule for all life, all practice. Do you really believe that? So, so think about this. And I'm assuming that no member of ABC at the least, and probably no confessing evangelical Protestant Christian here this morning, is going to disagree with either God's promise found in Isaiah or our church's confession. But what do your actions say you believe? If your unbelieving friends and family were to ask you to explain your doctrine of the Bible, would your words match your life? Is God's word at the center of your life? Or have you compartmentalized it away to the edge? Or is God's word compartmentalized as an important part of your life? Because doing so still relegates God's word as just a part of your life. Like King Josiah, we need to commit to making the reading and hearing of God's word a priority. That means you need to read God's word. You need to read the Bible and not simply as a morning devotion that you get to check off on your daily to-do list. The Bible is not about us. It's not an owner's manual. It's not a self-help book. It's a story, a true story about the sovereign creator of the universe. When we wake up, 
and our thought, our objective with our Bible reading is to find a short passage to make our day better, we're missing the point. We have drugged God's eternal word and his revelation of himself and his story into our self-serving life that idolizes comfort and we warp it to make it about us. And when we do that, we miss God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, read the Bible and read it with hearts longing to know who God is. And we also need to commit to hearing God's word preached. And we do that on the Lord's Day. This morning, by God's grace, we are gathered together as God's new covenant people. We are in the middle of a covenant ceremony. And like all covenant ceremonies, the history and terms of the covenant are rehearsed. This is one of the reasons why the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached every Sunday here. Sometimes I'm asked, why does your church include the gospel in every sermon? Don't, we, don't you already know it? Why, why do you have to keep saying it over and over? Because we are God's people. And we are called to rehearse the history in terms of the covenant in praise and thanksgiving to our good God and King. I promise you that if I don't preach the gospel while I'm up here today, William is prepared to preach it down there before we celebrate communion. The gospel is going to be preached here this morning one way or the other. Amen, brother? Amen. And Lord willing, like the ancient covenants that included meals, our covenant ceremony today is going to conclude with the meal. In a few minutes, we are going to partake of the bread and the cup. And in doing so, we are going to remember and rehearse that we have been baptized by the blood of Jesus Christ into the full, new, and better covenant assured by the obedience and sacrifice of the final Adam, the final Paschal Lamb, the real David, the real Israel, our eternal prophet, priest, and king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, Make sure that the Lord's Day is a priority in your life. Commit to placing yourself under the preaching, the faithful preaching of God's Word on Sunday. And, and if you don't have a church family, pray about formally uniting with ABC. We'd love to talk to you about it at the doors. Let's get back to our text. And follow along as I read 2 Chronicles 34, verses 31 through 33. 2 Chronicles 34, verses 31 through 33. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. King Josiah didn't just lead his people in the reading and hearing of God's law. He led his people in a response. And that's our final point this morning, responding to God's law. Within the text... This is actually very simple. King Josiah responded to the reading of God's law by obeying God's law. Whatever complications exist are found within our response to this text. You know, those, those questions about the relation of law and grace that I mentioned at the start. But let's continue to unpack these verses. And so, in, in doing this backwards, verse 33 gives us, gives us the summation of these three verses. 
Responding to God's law means removing wrong, sinful worship and replacing it with the right worship of the one true God. And that worship means faithfully following God in obedience. King Josiah and the people read, heard God's law, and responded with obedience immediately. They didn't negotiate with God. They didn't say, look, I get it. The idols are problematic. They do need to go. I understand. But I need to plant my crops. You understand, right, God? I'm busy serving my family by making sure that they're provided for. I'll knock them down later. I promise. I'm not going to really pay attention to the idols anyway. No. In verse 31, Josiah immediately, in the place he was standing, reaffirmed the covenant with God. He immediately acknowledged that as God's king to God's people, he was required to be faithful. Reading and hearing God's word not only reveals who God is, it also reveals idols. God's word shines a light into the darkness of our hearts and exposes the things that we worship and cling to instead of worshiping and clinging to Jesus. And our idol should be destroyed. When confronted with the idols in our heart or in our home or in our bank accounts, do our responses match King Josiah's? When you realize that something is an idol and is keeping you from always looking to Jesus, do you repent where you stand? Or do you just cling to it a little bit? It's okay. I'm not that devoted to my career. My weekend sports league only keeps me from church once every few weeks. My favorite TV show only causes me to look on the nakedness of someone else every once in a while. Besides, I turn away anyway. It's okay. No. It's not okay. Brothers and sisters, it's not okay. Jesus should be our all. Our life should be overwhelmed by gratitude for what God has done, has done for us. And our lives should be fully centered on Jesus. Anything that causes us to turn our eyes from Jesus should be discarded immediately without compromise. Do you know what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus even for a moment? Ask Peter. He sunk. Sin wants to swallow us. Not only was Josiah's response immediate and complete, it was worship. It wasn't some sort of pragmatic, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back kind of thing. God had already told him what was going to happen. Josiah's faithfulness wasn't going to stop the coming judgment. And he didn't earn anything by reaffirming the covenant and pursuing faithful obedience. God had already told Josiah that he was going to spare him from the coming judgment. If you want to see a contrast, look at his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah when he heard the same thing. Hezekiah basically said, oh good, at least it ain't going to happen while I'm alive. Not Josiah. Josiah's response is because of God's salvation. It wasn't to secure God's salvation. And this is no different from the covenant ceremony in Exodus. And some of you thought I was going to say this is no different from now. It was just true. But it's also no different from the covenant ceremony in Exodus. One story. I'm going to quote just two short verses from Exodus. But I want us to look at them and read them and hear them and feel them. So turn with me to Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2. It can be found on page 61 of the Bibles provided. Page 61, Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2. Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2. The Ten Commandments... The summation of God's moral law begins with these words. And God spoke all these words saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Last week, we heard a sermon about being freed from the slavery of sin. One story. God gave his people his law after he brought them out of Egypt. Not before. Their obedience to God didn't bring them out of Egypt. Their obedience was to be because God brought them out of Egypt. Their obedience was to be a response of thankfulness and worship to the God who had saved them. And in doing so, they were to be a blessing to the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now let me tell you about who I am and what it looks like to be my people. Hence God gives His people His law, Himself. He gives His people Himself. Our obedience is an act of worship, an act of praise and thanksgiving. Often the contemporary arguments about law versus grace aren't rooted in God's story to begin with. Often those who ask the question don't understand or don't care that even in the Old Testament, grace came before the law. That raises the question though, doesn't it? How can God give grace to sinners? How could God give grace to Josiah? Our text this morning isn't claiming that Josiah never sinned for the rest of his life. He violated God's law from time to time, just like us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 And now we get to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. God's holy standard, His law, cannot be violated without consequence. Violating God's law is what started all of this in the first place. In God's first place, Eden, God's first people, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and disobeyed His command to not eat of the forbidden fruit. By doing so, they forfeited their claim to life into a relationship with their Creator, and they were kicked out of God's place, out of God's presence. But in the middle of doing so, in the middle of revealing Himself to be perfectly just by punishing sin, God said, even though you broke it, I'm going to fix it because I love you and I want you to have a relationship with me and I know that's not possible if I leave it up to you. So in Genesis 3.15, God promised to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. It's no wonder that that's my favorite verse in the Bible. Have you ever noticed how frequently God talks about the promised seed in the Bible? Your seed, Abraham. Your seed, David. In Isaiah 54.3, the seed refers to the chosen offspring of Israel. And then, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we meet Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. In the gospel that bears His name, Luke takes it back even farther in chapter 3, verse 38. The seed of Adam, the seed of God. Isaiah knew this. David knew the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. While the old covenant saints didn't know the specifics, they knew that God was coming to save them. That God was going to crush the head of the serpent. Read the book of Hebrews. It's all in there. They knew that they were sinners and incapable of fulfilling the covenant demands. David cried, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51 verses 2 through 4. Okay, we get it, John. It's about Jesus. But what about grace? What about our freedom in Christ? What about the tension between the law and the gospel? There is no tension. That's the point. 
In Matthew 5.17, we read the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. During the covenant with Abraham, when it was time for the covenant to be sealed in blood and for Abraham to take on the curse of death, if he failed to keep the covenant stipulations, God did it. A flaming torch and a smoking pot passed through the divided animals. Do you remember Mount Sinai? The fire and smoke? It was God. God said, stop, Abraham. You can't do this. You'll fail. And because you'll fail, the curse of death is going to fall on you. And because you are a sinner, death will have an eternal hold on you. You will never be my people. You will never enjoy my rest in my land. So stop. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the curse of death upon myself. And so God passed to the divided animals, knowing, knowing that His people would fail, and that the covenant stipulations would not be met, and that the curse of death would descend on Him. And that's why the light of the world left His home in heaven and took on all the frailty of human flesh because we sinned. God's people failed to keep the covenant stipulations. The curse of death fell on Jesus Christ. But because He was without sin, because He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, death had no claim on Him. Sin's curse was broken and the grave couldn't hold Him. And He died, the spotless Lamb of God, because Jesus obeyed His Father perfectly. He kept the covenant stipulations. He obeyed God's law. He obeyed it for you if you repent and place your faith in Him. Before we close, let's circle back to our text. Look with me again at the last half of verse 32 of chapter 34. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. The people realized that right worship requires obedience. That dreaded word that strikes at our God of individualism and self-actualization, obedience. And make no mistake, the people of 2 Chronicles 34 lived in a time that worshipped that God too. Everyone from Adam and Eve on has been born worshipping the God of independence. Submitting ourselves to God in obedience is not our natural state. This brings me back to my question about my son's statement. Am I required to obey God's law? Yes. Christian, are you required to obey God's law? Yes. Hebrews 12.4 commands us to strive for holiness. How do we do that? How do we strive for holiness? What do we look to as our guide? Well, the Bible. God's law. And if you want to push back and say, Oh no, John, we need to look to Jesus. I agree. And guess what? Jesus faithfully obeyed His Father. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying it. And we are called to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's our hope, our prayer. And pursuing holiness by obeying God's law is how the image of Christ is manifest in our lives. Just like it was for the Old Testament saints. One story. But John, and I see and hear this all the time, this thinking has permeated American religious thought. But John, Jesus said that the most important commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. Yes, I agree. And guess what? 
Loving God and loving your neighbor looks like not stealing from your neighbor, not killing your neighbor, not committing sexual sin with your neighbor, not dealing dishonestly with your neighbor. Loving your neighbor looks like the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And here's the thing, and I don't have time to unpack this. I'll be happy to do so afterwards at the door where I can recommend some books. God's law was given in three aspects. The civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. Sinclair Ferguson explains God's law and its moral requirements, the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments, revealed the need for a Redeemer. In its ceremonial requirements, it gave hope of redemption. In its civil regulations, it preserved for God the nation from which the Redeemer would arise. The civil and ceremonial aspects have become obsolete. But God's moral law can be traced and seen from the Garden of Eden through the Old Testament and into the New. Adam and Eve dealt dishonestly with God. They lied to God. Cain killed Abel. After Abraham deceives Abimelech about who Sarah is, God warns Abimelech, the king of Gerar, about sexual sin and threatens him with death because of it. And that's all before the Ten Commandments were given. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that if we feel angry towards someone... We've committed murder. If we look at somebody with lust, we've committed adultery. Throughout his letters, Paul affirms this teaching. God's moral law is a reflection of his character, of who he is. And like King Josiah, we are called to obedience because we are his. If your desire is to be like Jesus, then your desire finds its pattern in God's law. And obeying God's law means letting go of our sin, of our idols, and faithfully pursuing Jesus. Christian, are you clinging to your idols? Or like King Josiah, are you going to commit to destroying your idols and pursuing Jesus right where you stand? When you reflect on what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, is your response some variation of, man, I'm glad I'm free to do whatever? Or is it? Praise God, I am free to pursue holiness for the glory of God and as a testament to who God is to those around me. Repent, tear down your idols, and know that Jesus' blood has covered your sins. And he has freed you from the slavery of sin and is leading you out of bondage and will one day bring you safely home. Don't turn back. Like King Josiah, don't look to the right or the left. Follow Jesus. Unbeliever. Non-Christian, what about you? Maybe you're here this morning and you believe that you can negotiate with God. That you're a good person and you're sure that you've done far more good than bad. Surely God won't send good people to hell, you believe. No. The Bible doesn't allow any room for that thought. Romans 5 tells us that all of us are born in Adam, the first Adam, the first sinner, And because of that, the curse of death hangs over us. Your Creator, God, fully expects full obedience of His law. His holiness will not allow for anything less. And His justice will not allow Him to simply overlook your sin, no matter how little you believe you sin. If you die thinking that your goodness will earn you eternal life, you're going to die under the sentence of death. God's wrath and eternal judgment is going to be your sentence. But that doesn't have to be your sentence. Humble yourself before God. 
Recognize that even the tiniest of sin is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God and is worthy of death. And then repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. Or maybe you believe that you're too broken. That your sin is too great. You say to yourself, God doesn't want me. I've broken His law at every turn. That's the good news. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. No amount of sin you do takes you outside of the grace of God. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, Jesus obeyed God for you. Jesus took the punishment of all your sins, no matter how many or how big. The majority of the New Testament was written by a murderer who was saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Unbeliever, don't wait. Repent today and place your faith in Jesus and not in yourself. If you have questions about what it means to repent of your sins and follow Jesus in faith, I would love nothing more than to talk with you about it. Find me at the door at the conclusion of the service. King Josiah led his people in a revival of faithful obedience to God. I pray that all of us here will respond to God's law by destroying the idols in our hearts and turning fully to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you have graciously given us yourself. You have made your character known through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, cause us to love your law, to delight in your word. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, be pleased to unite them to you in faith. And we ask all this in the name of your Son and our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn in your hymnal to number 134. Jesus paid it all. For those who are repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus, let's rejoice together in song that in the blood of Calvary's Lamb, our debt before God's throne has been paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Please stand as we sing.
revive the heart of the child. You have graciously assured us that those who conceal their transgressions will not prosper. Yet those who confess and forsake them will obtain mercy. And when a poor penitent said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, who forgave the iniquity of his sin. Therefore, we come before you now in the same way, humble and broken, and confessing that we are sinners. Even in confessing our sin, we have hope. For you have said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us and cleanse us, we pray, through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear these words of assurance and pardon for those who turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ from Romans 5, 8 and 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because communion is a visible display of unity, especially in the local church, I want to encourage the members of this congregation, those who have united with Arlington Baptist Church, to stand and renew their covenant with each other. <coughs> Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to give up ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our confession of faith in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in God, and His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of spirit and bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as we come to the members of the Christian Church, exercise affection, care, and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and treat one another. We will not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time remember our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice in each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live prayerfully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remember that, as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism, and raised again from the symbolic 
precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
eat this bread and drink this cup to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Almighty and ever loving God, we thank you that you have fed us at your table spiritual food, and have assured us of your goodness toward us. We thank you that we are members of the body of Christ. Assist us with your grace, so that we may continue in this fellowship, and live more fully to your glory. O Lord, keep our minds and hearts focused on the main thing in the supper, that this meal reminds us that Jesus gave his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Enable us to continue to this good news, so that we may have confidence before your throne through Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll conclude our point together by uh, turning your hymnal to number 134, Jesus paid it all, and we will sing the last verse together. Please stand and sing.